So we are in progress, and I'm very pleased to be joined by both Georgina Jones and Dougal McIntosh. Dougal, thank you very much for joining us. How are you doing? Thank you very much, Johnny. Good to be here. Excellent stuff. And Georgina, welcome back. How are you? Thank you. I'm really great. Thanks for having me back again. Excellent stuff. So I'm really looking forward to this three-way conversation, looking at how effective workforce categorisation can help optimise resource decisions. Um, and I think what will be really useful just before we get started is just some quick introductions on your background, just for our listeners to understand uh, the relevance of that. So, Georgina, do you just want to give a quick refresh on uh, what you do, how you got there and the journey uh, that you've taken? Yeah, of course. Absolutely. Um, so I work um, within the organisational effectiveness team at the co-op and, and part of my role is to ensure that we are um, optimising all of the different worker types that we have in our organisation. So I'm very much from a um, recruitment background, but I've had a short stint in um, procurement and I am a self-confessed contingent labour and outsource geek. Um, so thoroughly enjoy um, listening to these podcasts and contributing um, and obviously meeting great people like Dougal to be able to create some something that's um, both meaningful and useful in organisations. So really looking forward to talking to you about the collaboration that we've been working on together over the last couple of months. Excellent stuff. Thanks very much, Georgina. Dougal, um, you've obviously worked on some really interesting stuff. Can you give us a bit of background on your path to where you are right now? Sure. Yeah, Johnny, I, I think I spent most of my career essentially designing and delivering workforce programs. That's principally MSP programs, RPOs, uh, both in the UK and uh, uh, across Europe. Um, but for the, for the last year and just prior to that, I, I essentially have been a switch sides, if you like, and have been directly advising clients around how they design their programs and figure out workforce strategy. Um, uh, and that's where Georgina and I connected, actually, um, uh, through um, through one of those engagements. I, I currently work for for Grace, um, so I've uh, changed roles again slightly. Um, what we do is we um, we uh, hire really good grads, train them up to fill roles where there are particular um, skill shortages. So I guess I spent my career talking about skills and skill shortages, and now I've got a role in helping make them which is which is actually really quite satisfying yeah that's great thank you and yeah skills very much uh, core to this discussion um so just to sort of set the scene so the two of you have been doing some really interesting work in this area um georgina can you just talk a little bit about how your collaboration with Dougal came about and just in particular kind of focus on the specific problem or problems that you were looking to solve Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I was introduced to uh, Dougal and his previous organisation through um, Melanie Forbes of the um, AppsCo Outsource community. So Co-op and myself are actually one of the um, founding client members of that community. And I was really talking to her about a couple of things um, to do with how we ensure that we understand the total um, workforce mix in our organisation and the 
the, the risks and compliance challenges that might exist in terms of engaging um, those individual worker types. And that was kind of stemmed from IR35 and my role around implementing IR35 for the co-op, which, um, you know, I, see, I feel like I've been doing forever. Um, but we we started to think about, well, yes, there's limited work, limited company contractors that we need to be aware of, but actually there's freelancers in the mix that are probably used in areas um, such as our marketing business and then there's potentially sole traders that are being engaged in our funeral business and, and how do we actually understand the risks associated with engaging all of these worker types and actually how many more worker types exist out there was the question that I was asking Mel and she said look there's a really um, brilliant gentleman that you should meet um, who's got a great brain and a, a good kind of view on this and we started to, to pull together what's what almost looks like a matrix of all of the different worker classifications that exist it's not exhaustive and I think we'd probably like to ask some of your viewers to give us some comments on whether we've we've missed any it's definitely evolving um, but the worker categories what that what the definition of those workers actually is because we can all use those terms interchangeably can't we um, contingent labor seems to be a catch-all for absolutely every worker type that isn't paid through the payroll um, things like who is responsible for the outcome and the delivery of the work or the service that you're offering is it the client or is it the service provider um, is there an IR35 issue that you need to be aware of or is there a greater compliance issue that that needs to be considered um, so the predominant focus for me was how do we make sure that we're complying with all of the legislations when it comes to worker types but actually what we've been using this for is really to educate our buyers and our stakeholders in the organization as to yes the risk that um, engaging different worker types bears, but equally the, the pros and cons of engaging worker types as, as well when it comes to thinking about the capability we need in the organisation and the work that we need to get done. Uh, so that's how that's how the, the collab started effectively. Yeah, and I think it's very pertinent in the sense that you've got an immediate need around, as you say, risk and compliance and, and the regulatory side of it, but there's a wider picture to it. Um, Dougal, I know this is an area that you're, um, you know, very much aware and very knowledgeable about in terms of the kind of the bigger trends that are affecting this sort of thing when it comes to workforce. Can you just give a little bit of background on on what you saw that was going on in the background and, and that is still going on in the background that's, that's pushing some changes in this area? Well, you're both very kind to me, so thanks for that. But yeah. um, let me have a go. I mean, I'll I'll I'll, I'll start by kind of taking us five steps back if you like from the the challenge that Georgina's kind of um trying to handle in her role within the co-op and I think there's these kind of big macro trends right that are going on um that we've all been talking about for for quite a long time so you've got this this globalized marketplace or increasingly globalized workforce western economies uh who are increasingly have this demographic cliff right in terms of um, you know, what I'm talking about there is um, retiring workers. Yeah. So um, people with the skills or generally the workforce are retiring. That's even more acute um, in countries like Germany, Netherlands uh, than it is in the UK. Um, and obviously that's been solved in the short term um, through um, European immigration, for example. And obviously Brexit has um, perhaps stopped that a little bit um, in the UK. Um, and then you have, um, if you like, this increasing demand for modern skills, um, digital technology, and you've got the people with those skills increasingly calling the shots around how they work and 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 uh, where they deliver that that work from. So you've got all this um, that we're all figuring out um, how to deal with, and you've got governments 
um, thinking about what their role is in this. Um, and that's really where you get the legislation around IR35, yeah, um, the, the Uber judgment, yeah, around, um, you know, are these, are these workers essentially self-employed? Uh, are they uh, employees? Yeah, and you kind of got two things there. I think you've got um, the uh, the government's responsibility to, to workers, right? Okay, who are ultimately um, voting for them, um, and you've got uh, the tax revenues that they get from from payroll, right? Um, and obviously, I don't think it's any coincidence that both of those judgments obviously uh, increase um, the, 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 the payroll tax uh, take, take for government. Yeah. Um, but then you, you can see how companies are responding to that. And a real topical one that's worth looking at is P&O. Right. I think, you know, I think arguably um, I would say perhaps they've got their choices wrong in that, you know, and um, they're obviously rather embarrassing and having to eat humble pie. Yeah. Um, I think even today, the CEO has had to come out following Boris Johnson saying it was illegal to accept that it, what he did was illegal. What they did was illegal. Uh, whether it changes the end result or not is unsure, but it certainly had massive reputational damage, I would argue. Um, and it would be difficult for P&O to recover from that. And obviously, responsible organisations like the co-ops, yeah, are trying to get that right. Yeah, they're trying to get their... Uh, workforce strategy right around how they handle all these moving parts, do it responsibly, um, get the workers that they need to get work done and do that compliantly, because obviously it's very important to their business, not only to be able to compete, but obviously to be able to um, to have um, a brand reputation that people want to work for and, and obviously in the co-ops case, buy from, right? Yeah, and it extends to the internal workforce, the external workforce, the supply chain. It's 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 exactly. all about wanting to be part of that ecosystem these days, isn't it? It's a very, very important part of it. So, so that's great. So we've got these large trends that are occurring. We've got issues that were being addressed within the cult that are issues that lots of companies are having to address and have had to address over the last couple of years. Um, can you can you both just talk a little bit about maybe Georgina, if you could go first, just talking a little bit about in practice, what did it actually involve? Um, a lot of discussions and head scratching, I think would be fair to say initially, perhaps more from me than from, from Dougal. Um, so we we initially talked about the problem that, that we were trying to solve as, as I described, and we really wanted to look at this in terms of kind of what rights did different worker types have in employment law or not, as the case may be, um, and then what tax obligation would we potentially have and how would that play into the different choices or levers that the co-op might want to pull in terms of the way that they, they wanted to engage. And what's really apparent to everybody is that, you know, the way people choose to work is, is only going to change, is only likely to become much more flexible and therefore we need to be really aware of the different contracting mechanisms that exist. So it was a, it was a bit of a brain dump initially around well what all what are all of the worker types that exist what do they what do they mean what what kind of definitions can we create that are really simple and meaningful and the list was was a pretty long one in fact I'm looking at the list I'm reminding myself just how long just how long the list the list is um, and then we wanted to really challenge ourselves around well who is responsible for the the outcome of that work and, and often one of the things that 
we as the co-op and I'm sure many other um, client side businesses are guilty of is that we often think the supplier is accountable for the delivery of the work but in fact it's the co-op and then conversely it's it's the other way around so really shaping and defining who is accountable and who is um, responsible is is super critical for also who holds that responsibility and also what are the obligations from the supplier the client and the worker so it was a number of discussions and almost mapping mapping that out um, then the next thing that we started to do is a little bit of a, an audit of our workforce and that is easier said than done and in fact we're still doing that audit Google months and months later um, because visibility of your workforce is one of the biggest challenges so you can't say with certainty what the scale and complexity of your workforce actually looks like unless you can see them um, so we started simply with those visible workers and it was really straightforward to review some of the contracts that we have with the suppliers and then the back-to-back -back contracts with them individually to determine which classification and category they would potentially sit in and then therefore assessing the risk that we that we maybe had but since then we've been going on a, um, a kind of big program of work to just really uncover where we are utilizing resource and labor to get work done so rather than saying are you using a freelancer or are you using contingent labor we're just saying have you got third party skills or capability resources in your team and if so what are they doing what do they look like how are we engaging with them them. And then we're using the tool that we've created as almost a check back to say, based on what we've heard and the contracting mechanism that we believe is in place, or in some instances, not in place, and we, we definitely need to remedy that, what classification um, would that worker technically have so it's definitely a, a learning curve and it's been an education process for certainly myself and equally all of the engagement managers as well because their predominant focus is to get the work done in the most timely and cost efficient way and certainly considering legal obligations tax implications contracting rights isn't something that they would automatically think about but this has definitely helped us start um the conversation and really what we want this to be is something that's just part and parcel of their DNA and the DNA of my team and the procurement team when they're supporting the buying process. So initially the creation of the definitions and the framework that really makes sense and is clear and then the second thing was around that audit but I think you know for anybody listening that audit isn't a one a one-off job it's it's constant because as soon as you think you've captured 100% of your worker type you recognize that there's something else going on um, that you that you need to address so it's a constant audit and regular check back to get a sense of the the risk profile the cost profile and then putting in them the relevant remedies to address that yeah and i guess within an organization like the co-op that's so varied there are so many different worker types maybe more than in some organizations but also things are changing rapidly aren't they particularly with like you know opening and closing stuff with covid and people being in the office and in stores or home it's it's, it's a lot to deal with isn't it so as you say it's not just a one and done type approach Absolutely not. And we, um, you know, the, the co-op have been in a, a really fortunate position, I suppose, through COVID. We have been feeding the nation and then we've been caring for 
for you know families who've maybe lost loved ones throughout the, the COVID pandemic. So our need to flex has been ever greater um, this time, but we continue to um, need to adapt our ways of working in terms of the way people are choosing to shop now. So clearly we have a very prominent store footprint, but we equally recognize that wholesale and franchise and um, e-commerce is, is probably where our business is, is looking to move to. And therefore we will need to adapt the skills and capabilities that we maybe have now into what um, is going to be uh, setting us up for the future so that is likely to change our workforce mix even greater than it is today but predominantly we've we've been for a long time a very traditional business of more on payroll workers than off payroll workers I think that balance will slightly start to tip but the variance of that off payroll working uh, worker audience is far greater than we initially anticipated is probably what we're finding right interesting um, so, Dougal, from your point of view, coming in as an external uh, consultant, so like advisor, how was that process in terms of the way that you interacted with the, with Georgina as kind of the the, the owner of the initiative and, and other stakeholders yeah. within the business? Well, I think I think that it was interesting because I think we all learned as we went through this. You know, we started off, I think, um, with the you know these three classifications i think of worker didn't we georgina originally there was a perm worker a temporary contractor or there's a service-based worker but as you said very eloquently right there's a lot more than that yeah and who's responsible who isn't responsible yeah and i think the other thing and i think co-op's a great example of this right you can't stop to get it right yeah you've got to co-op's as Georgina said, you know, you've got to keep the lights on, you know, the stores open, everything's moving. And I think there was a particular pressure with the co-op as well, where if everybody remembers the supply chain issues, right, that are going on um, and probably continue to go on. And then there's the cost of um, uh, everything that goes into those stores, which are obviously increasing. And obviously the co-op, you know, is trying to not pass on all those costs to the consumer so you know there's a significant amount of pressure i think um that i recall so georgina um if i remember i think there was two key things that you were kind of that would if you like create the sense of urgency around the project right um one was the the opportunity to take cost out so once you categorize the workers correctly that gives you an opportunity to buy in a, a more intelligent way, yeah? So, you know, ultimately, where are you getting value? Who is genuinely taking risk reward versus who's essentially under the task direction of, of, of co-op, yeah? So I think people who are for procurement looking at this will absolutely recognize, you know, any an organization like co-op, you know, significant part of their spend is on, you know, in human capital, right? So if you can buy more intelligently, then you're going to take cost out. And obviously the co-op are keen to reinvest that back into their business. And obviously, um, you know, under significant cost pressure um, for the for their own customers. And I think the other big driver, if I remember correctly, Georgina, was was compliance, right? Is is uh, you know, with IR35 and various other things going on, you know, the co-op is one of these big employers in the UK, right, that doesn't want to get a tap on the door from the HMRC. And be told that they're engaging workers incorrectly and uncompliantly yeah so those two big um levers if you like whether the 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 the, the, the kind of the i don't i the, you know the what you were pulling the business forward with in terms of the necessity to do this project and get it completed yeah um whilst all these other priorities are going on which are also taking lots of management time 
um, and are, you know, are also important. And Dougal, in terms of the audit that Georgina was describing, the process around actually bringing all of this stuff to light, um, in your experience, how useful is that type of information when it comes to pushing the case for change and actually kind of raising awareness of the issues? Is that something that... It, it, it's the start point. Yeah, absolutely. I think I'm trying to take myself back a little bit here, but I think we had a number of phases, didn't we, in our project plan. Um, audit essentially was the first one. And that was data, right? Okay, we were trying to pull as much data from the systems as possible. But the other thing we were very conscious of doing, Johnny, was not get too bogged down in it, right? Because ultimately it changes, as you say. Yeah, people leave, new assignments are being brought in. What we were looking for is the signals as to what it was, that what were the workers, who was supplying them, what was the co-op getting back from that, essentially. And that, if you like, created then the business case to go forward to, to the next stage. So audit was, 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 was absolutely phase one. And then I think there was, you know, a certain amount of, um, you know, you then needed to validate that, right? Okay, in terms of, you know, with the users, the people were were buying it, um, and then that started to create, and that also started to to help create the blueprint, really, for um, the, what that future program um, might look like. And I think the other key challenge that you get, and you get these with. Um, um, a lot of programs yeah i think there are certain categories which are relatively easy to see and get after particularly um you know contingent workers temp workers for example often is kind of managed first in an msp or for a vms for example the service-based workers aren't so much right um, for all sorts of different reasons um and sometimes the business don't want them to be frankly um uh um you know to be um to, they want them to be opaque yeah it's you know a that, very, that's it's a very good point it's a really good point <laughs> so is, is it that's why i think we keep coming back to this why why what legitimizes you know this workforce strategy that goes across all the categories of workers what legitimizes this as being a central initiative right that warrants somebody coming in and 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 and, and, and maybe um um, ultimately, you know, because it's not about telling people that, you know, sophisticated buyers that they're buying incorrectly. It's about trying to do it in a more optimum way. And obviously, if you can do that across an organization like Co-op, you know, the, 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 the rewards are, 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 are significant. So compliance, clearly a big part of this. Um, Georgina, in terms of the kind of internal support or the, the kind of momentum behind this project, was that something, I assume compliance was probably a key part of that initial driver, but as you started unearthing information and kind of pulling the stuff together, how did the support change? Was it just consistent or was it something that was harder and then got a bit easier? Um, a, a mixture of all of, the, of all of those things, to be honest. And when anybody's trying to implement something that's maybe new or actually quite difficult, you, you hit some hurdles and stumbling blocks al along the way. Um, so compliance was absolutely our initial driver. But as we began to find some um, perhaps misclassification of workers, it meant that we could absolutely drill into that and see whether there was a... Um, a value benefit or a cost benefit of looking at things in a in a slightly different way so um you know the momentum started to build once we could show that not only did we have misclassification in our workforce from a legislation perspective we were also buying in a really inappropriate and ineffective way um and perhaps that that was just 
through the lack of knowledge and understanding. It wasn't for any other fault of, you know, anyone's fault particularly, but we just weren't really 100% clear what we maybe wanted at the outset. And therefore we've been driven by the supplier's recommendation. And sometimes that wasn't necessarily the, the right thing. So um, we definitely got some more effort and energy when we could prove that this wasn't just about ticking a compliance box, that actually we could really add some value around showing the cost benefit and value benefit of maybe looking at slightly alternatives. Uh, solutions and part of the work that we're doing right now is moving away from compliance not that that isn't critically important we're going to continue on making sure that um, we have a compliant workforce but really making sure that we offer a decision tree concierge approach that's why that's how I like to determine it it's probably not the right language to be introducing to the business a decision tree concierge but I, I hope you get the, the concept of what I'm saying we could we can use this worker classification tool albeit an excel spreadsheet we can use this tool and this framework to help make informed and intelligent decisions so my um, aspiration for this is that we can start to overlay some scenarios on it that say if you want to do this type of work you could pull one of these two levers and this is how long the work might take this is how much it could cost you and this is how you would need to engage with the supplier and or the worker if that's not going to work for you you could try option a b and c so that's exactly how i would like to evolve this piece of work we're not quite there yet but um, that's how i see it working and therefore if we can show that we're not only reducing cost removing any element of risk mitigating any challenges then you know we 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 seem to be very uh, relatively well supported and of course in the current climate we are really focusing on how we can do things in the most optimal way and focus on value rather than just cost drivers and uh, risk drivers yeah absolutely and that's where it pushes into the longer term play and where it really starts to become true workforce strategy um, I want to come on to that. Um, come on to that in a minute. Talk about that in a bit more detail. But <clears throat> just going back to this whole project, I mean, when you you know you were saying that you know unearthed certain things that maybe weren't the way that you would have ideally wanted to do them, and maybe there was some education going on within the business about different worker types, different opportunities, some of the compliant. But a lot has changed. A lot has changed over the last few years. I mean, take Brexit out of it. Take IR thirty five out of it. Take COVID out of it. There was still actually a lot changing. I don't know if you'd agree with that, Dougal, having been involved in the workforce sector for such a long period of time, but with the growth of the gig economy, more flexibility, different working models coming, even if you take out those three giant factors of COVID, Brexit and IR35, I still feel like a lot was changing anyway. Oh, I look, it's such an exciting time to be in, you know, our our industry, frankly, this, you know, as you say, there's, you know, it's moving very quickly. I think, I think what we've seen, um, these kind of were in there already, as I as I, as I kind of talked about up, up at the beginning, Johnny. But but COVID has just accelerated it, yeah. Um, and I think um, and and I and it'll be really interesting to see. I've got we've got this big conversation going on within our own organisation, and we have a um, you know our demog- demographic, um, the people who work with us, are, tend to be very young, diverse, uh, and we're trying to understand what within our own organization, for example, what the right balance is between um, uh, home working, working in the office, building those connections amongst ourselves in terms of, in order to be able to help people develop and also uh, be creative. And I think that, um, you know, 
the way that we 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 relax, you know, we go into whatever um, you know a working state that we're going to be in in the future is going to look is going to look very different. I think there's another big opportunity which will be really interesting to see is that, um, and I think certain organisations are really embracing it. Um, is you know if we don't need to be in the same office, uh, and we can't quite get the skills that we need um, locally, and I mean locally even in our own country, yeah. Um, you know, are we going to be connecting with workers um, that um, aren't even, um, in, you know, in our countries so are connecting remotely? And I think we started to see that, particularly with software development, that type of thing, that whole idea of, you know, just doing software on the beach. Um, it would be interesting to see how that, um, how that grows over time. But again, another big challenge for governments in terms of uh, how they're uh, regulating for that. Where's the tax going to be paid? Um, and I think that's a little bit away, you know, for bigger organisations. One thing for, for tech startups to be embracing that, but for bigger organisations, I don't think they're quite yet there yet because of some of those barriers. Yeah, and it's interesting when you talk about these changes and you look at the shape of organisations, more and more, the uh, I believe, the importance of an organisation's brand comes to the fore in terms of what does that organization stand for? What do they represent? What are their values? Because not only is that essential for your internal core permanent workforce, but I think it's more and more important for contractors who discern, you know, who they want to work for, um, you know, non, non-employee workers, and also, as I said, service providers. Um, so, so that transition from it just being 60 years ago, job for life and, you know, uh, gold watch at the end of it or something like that is this transition more towards this more flexible skill-based um working where people are focusing on what they're good at and what they enjoy doing take something like cybersecurity. you know a lot of people will contract just because they can just do the cool stuff that they're interested in as an example um that's where you see the the importance of the value of brand ethics and um purpose really coming to the fore because it's not just about hiring and that's important for hiring now it's important for everything because it's not just going to be your permanent workforce anymore it's this extended ecosystem uh georgina i'm sure that's something that's very topical for you guys in terms of the wider approach of what co-op's doing 100 and uh, i think i talked about um the way we approach our kind of attraction our talent attraction um last time because we are absolutely a you know we're a purpose-led organization we're, we're member-owned we're here to serve um our members and, and communities predominantly and therefore you you tend to find individuals who are absolutely focused on the same ethical and social values being really attracted to the organization and that's what we want to um to continue to to harness so for us it's about how can we ensure that not only our employee value proposition is really clear but also how can we ensure that that's clear in the contingent space because we don't often talk to our um contingent workers off payroll workers however we want to to term them um, and probably tell them the story about why the co-op is a really good organization to work within even if it's for a short period of time because clearly we want everybody to be advocates of our brand and not just the the, you know the, the work that they do for a short period of time here but one of the things that I also think is is fascinating and changing quickly is the is organizational shift from having very very narrow roles and you know expert routes to organizations being com- becoming much 
flatter and therefore wanting individuals who can um, pivot to service different organisational needs and that breadth as well as depth is of utmost importance for organisations and that people's ability to um, pivot have an element of entrepreneurial spirit and, and actually be able to do multiple things really well rather than just one thing well is going to be increasingly critical for all, all organisations including the co-op. Yeah, it kind of comes down to trust, doesn't it? If you're if you're an organisation and you've got trusted um, trusted employees who are part of the business who are contributing, then then there's there's all sorts of things that they could be doing that are going to really drive value. But you trust them, you know they've got the right. They they share the values. They're on the same path. They're committed. And I think the same is true when it comes to the supply chain as well. In the sense that when organisations actually expand their strategy and, and maybe look at the services side of it in a bit more detail. There are innovative, agile suppliers out there that, again, that trust and that capability can be built and it can be shifted, possibly when you get these kind of new emerging areas where you might get somebody who's on the kind of leading edge of one area and they can help you transition to another area that might mean them expanding and developing as well. So I think it's a really interesting dynamic. Um, but just to take it back to uh, some of the nitty gritty. So clearly, compliance and cost are two big drivers at the start of this process. But actually, where it really starts to bear fruit is where you gain this understanding. As Dougal said, you know, you, you, you kind of understand the status quo and then it informs the net new opportunities as you move forward. Um, so, Georgina, from a strategic point of view, um, firstly, creating those definitions feels to me like a lot of hard work. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about that? And also just in terms of how that definition process has gone into the um decision-making process or where that's gone into the decision-making process sure um and it, it it was hard it was hard work and I think it continues to be hard work because terms as I said before are used and can be used interchangeably and there's lots of lexicons of terms of, available and it would be so helpful for us to almost create an industry standard and or even a UK standard so selfishly the co-op are a UK only organisation um, so something that's really relevant to UK tax and UK employment law from a definitions perspective would be extremely beneficial for, for me um, and one of the words that was springing to mind when you were just asking me that question is accessibility and understanding. So whatever we create needs to be really basic and super accessible um, for people to understand the importance of and the benefit of, um, you know, having really detailed and considered informed workforce discussions. So um, we are definitely still on a journey, Johnny. So I would be foolish to sit here and say that we've got all of this nailed. We, we absolutely haven't. Um, but our definitions are published. We have a SharePoint site that we've created at the co-op and our definitions are published on there. And we talk about, you know, the, the pros and cons and almost the, the, the features of different worker classification types. Um, we have created a, a, a team almost that act as that central point for queries on this is the particular piece of work that I'd like to get done. And, and often the decision is, is far broader than is it a contract or is it a statement of work? We are now starting to talk more and more about is it a recruit trained deploy partner? Um, so Grace is, is actually one of our current incumbent partners at the moment. And should we be really thinking about building our own capability if we know that 
that data is going to be an increasing capability that we need in our organization is a more and a more effective way to utilize our supply chain to help us to build that capability for the long term so for me from a strategic perspective creating a mechanism and a forum where people can come and seek guidance and support, be that through SharePoint or a physical conversation, to get a sense of whether the capability and skill is needed for the long term, the short term, how critical it is to do it within budget or on time can often mean that we can start to influence the decisions it doesn't you know but we're by no means experts we're not accountable for the decisions that the buyer or the hiring manager effectively makes but what we can do is be that first port of call and and that concierge so it would be great if we could find a solution that was technology-led or robotics-led perhaps but you know we're, we're definitely not there yet and actually the value of the conversation um is brilliant for to help us develop our level of understanding as well from a business unit perspective but strategically for us it's about having um, the definitions that are accessible easy to understand commonly used in the organization so people understand that we're talking about the same thing we're comparing apples with apples integrated into our reporting suite where possible so we can see the total workforce picture when we're reporting on our headcount or our establishment for example so it's about how we weave this into the dna of our products and services as well as the the kind of language that we use yeah really interesting so Dougal, from the point of view of dealing with this complexity um, because I've, I've seen i've seen the definitions and you know there's there's a lot to it it's not it's not a you know, it's on, went to do it, it's not a simple exercise. What was the process that you went through to firstly deal with the complexity involved and unearth it all, but then to try and simplify it? Okay, so I think it was a step-by-step process, really, Johnny. And it was one of, um, you know, I think we started from that, you know, uh, those two buckets, who's in control of the worker and the work, yeah? Uh, and then essentially, um, what did that mean, essentially, from a responsibility perspective? And I think that was a good, that was a good, um, you know, guide, I think. And I think you, you, Georgina is absolutely right. You know, the, the, one of the things that's not very helpful is there's lots of worker categories. These aren't, they don't have legal definitions, right? Okay, there's no legal definition for a gig worker, for example. You know, there's, uh, there's lots of other workers, uh, workers that have been seconded by your suppliers, um, which make it much more complex to manage but actually if you take it back to who's who has responsibility for the work and who has responsibility for the worker then that starts to help inform um ultimately your obligations as the hirer and the obligations of the the supplier and it helps you to break out the value also that you're getting um from 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 the supplier that's bringing you the the worker yeah and if we look at the Again, going back to some of the kind of macro changes. So clear shift over the last 20 years, 30 years maybe, to, to, to non-perm workers. Um, and that's accelerated with the addition of the kind of gig models, more remote, flexible models, like you say, this internationalization uh, potential that's come about. Um, there is so- another mix in there as well, I think, Johnny, whereby... Um, I think there's a there is absolutely you know an increase in non-perm workers. We see that, right? Okay, and I think the expectation is 
that that is going to continue. Yeah, that's going to that's going to continue to grow. Everybody everybody expects that, despite if you like certain government legislation that is almost promoting uh, permanent employment. Yeah, I think that. Um, and there's a bunch of different reasons for that. There's probably, you know, there's, there's workers that want to work in that way. Um, not always. Sometimes, um, you know, if they're in the low skilled category, you know, it's because, um, you know, there's, there's, there's benefits for the hirer. But in the high skilled category, I think there's certainly workers that want to work in that way. But I think there's also there's a convenience for the hirer as well. OK, this is this is helpful organizationally to companies not to have high fixed uh, permanent headcount. They want to use suppliers to help augment the talent that they've got in their business. Um, and they want to be able to do that in a sophisticated way. So some of it is totally outsourced, where it's the supplier's responsibility to deliver the work. Some of it is a bit closer, and they want to be able to, um, uh, to control the work but don't necessarily want to employ the worker and 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 as georgina says you know it, you know in some cases and this is the model that my own company have you know we've become a capability build so the the the, the workers aren't employees of of co-ops but after a period of time they've developed their skills they they can be right okay so that becomes potentially a capability build for certain skills where co-op decides they this is strategically important to, to permanently employ for the future. But I don't ever see, and I imagine you're, I think this is what you're saying, Georgina, you expect that mix of non-perm workers actually to increase over time, not decrease. Uh, I, yes and no. So I think it, that depends on the organisational context, right? So I expect that to increase from a market perspective. Do I expect that to increase within the co-op in, in the immediate term? No, in the longer term, yes, because our business model will continue to shift and evolve, and we we're not re we've not readied ourselves necessarily for that from a workforce perspective. So, I think it will ebb and flow. W one of the things that we and all organisations need to think about is whether there's another opportunity to deliver um, projects, maybe in a different way, by employing bench strength, for example. So. Is it the right thing to always flex to a third party when you get a new project or would it, you know, is there a more efficient way of continuing to have um, a great set of individuals who can turn their hand to many different broad projects um, on payroll? That might be a really efficient way of working. So actually, this is about an organization's ability to prepare and ready itself for change and then being able to make a strategic decision on whether we build that, we buy that or we borrow that capability in order to respond to it um, and we've de I've definitely got a foot in both camps at the moment I'm a firm believer that if we need to respond quickly and we don't have that skill then we're probably going to have to go out to market but if there's an opportunity to create a bench or build our capability then why why wouldn't we do that because it seems like the most pragmatic decision to take. So Georgina the um, the list that you have in front of you the kind of the output from the work that, the that oracle, you, you mean the oracle the <laughs> the oracle absolutely um so if you know what 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 are the what's the kind of almost like the extent of that in the sense if you look at one end you might have fully outsourced and fully you know how how many uh different category definitions have you got in there roughly because 
what you were talking about in terms of the different capacity, you've got to understand all of the options, really, haven't you? Yes, I'm counting them actually now. This would be it would be really helpful, Dougal, if we just put numbers on here. So perhaps we can just put <laughs> um, so we've got there's there's six, I think, if my mathematics are right, um, legal classifications of of workers that we've referred to. So we've got self-employed, we've got worker, we've got agency worker, employee, but then we've got sub categories within each of those so under self-employed you've got PSC sole trader freelancer independent independent worker so there's there's a number of different things but what we've really tried to do is bucket them under one legal classification where we can now there will be notably different contracting mechanisms and or payroll mechanisms and ways of working that you need to adopt for each of them but it's about trying to make this as simple and straightforward as possible to explain to a stakeholder when frankly all they're focused on is getting somebody in the door to get the work done in the most efficient way um so we you know that they've been designed based on tax and legal classifications because that's the easiest and most succinct way to do it um some of your listeners might have a different approach and i'm sure would be keen to to hear from from them about the, the way that they would potentially split this but this is intended to be um a guide you know, it's, it's, it's terminology that we want to consistently use within the co-op and guides the intelligent buying decision. That That's what it's there to do. Um, it doesn't say anything about what we might need to put into a contract. It doesn't talk about what benchmark rates we might be wanting to use for each of these individual classifications. I mean, you could create a monster. Um, but what we were really trying to do was make it simple and have something that was meaningful, meant that we understood the risks, the pros, the cons, um, in order to keep ourselves compliant and then find some, call it low-hanging fruit, call it cost opportunity, whatever that is, to unpick some misclassification. And as I said, we're we're not there. We're we're finding misclassification or inaccurate contracting mechanisms in lots of different areas. And, And hopefully over time, we'll start to address each and every one of them. Yeah, I mean, when you talk about the scope of it, I think starting with like clear legal definitions or, you know, compliance and tax, you know, black and white definitions is a great place to start to build that framework out. And then you have kind of like these sub frameworks underneath it as things expand. I mean, it's like, you know, we talked about people's understanding and where there's a clear classification of like a freelancer, for example. I remember doing some round tables at one of the SIA summits a few times, talking to people about freelancers. And I don't think I got the same definition from, you know, any of the you know groups of 10 people that were sat on a table each time. It's um, There's a lot of uh, variance in how people would describe stuff, use of different terminology, um, different levels of understanding. Um, but I think... Well, now you've got a handy guide now, Johnny. So you just need to download uh, the, the, um, the guide the we produced. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Well, there you go. There you go. Um, But, you know, if you look across all of these channels, there are all ways that an organisation could get work done. And, and, you know, Georgina, just a few of them, a couple of them that you've brought up today, um, like the bench side of it and the kind of, um, you know, build and build, build, train and deploy. I've probably got that phrase wrong. Apologies for that. Um, You know, these there's there's a lot available there. but smart organisations need to be aware that there are these different channels available and they need to know how to utilise them all in the right way. And that has different implications, as you said, from a point of view of contracting, from the risk and compliance side of it, in terms of how you cost it out, how you work out, you know, return on investment, all that sort of thing. 
So you need a str- if you've got a strategy for all channels and that business is fit for purpose and, it, and is in a great position to compete, where for those that aren't, that, that can't even understand what they've got to work with, let alone have a strategy for them, they're going to be way, way behind. So I think it's crucial. But, but you mentioned earlier about the decision tree and trying to keep that simple and taking it through into flows that people can just actually utilise. Um, that's That's got to be quite a critical part of it, really, I, I would assume. Yeah, um, it it is. It underpins a conversation. So right now it's a decision tree that's conversation led. And then there's a helpful reference to our SharePoint guide where somebody in my team who's brilliant at the process mapping software has been able to create some sort of yes, no questions. And it spits out a number of, of different channels. But right now we're still learning about what the organization really needs. And you talked about a couple of channels there. You know, we can't get away from the fact that um, the apprenticeship schemes that are brilliant and co-op, you know, have any anything between a, a thousand plus apprentices um, on program at any given time. The um, programs such as Kickstart, which are, are really brilliant Um, It doesn't feel right to call them sources, but that's the reality. They're just other options to to get work done. And it's about helping our stakeholders think all of those different things through when they start to have a buying decision. And, um, you know, when I started in the organization quite a few years ago now, the only conversation was I need to recruit a permanent person in this role and then we started to think about fixed term and secondees and then wow we talked about grads so over time our organization has become slightly more mature around the different sourcing options or the channels to um, hire or engage skills and capabilities and that kind of classification um, gets bigger and bigger and the decision tree gets bigger and bigger um, but we we do have a decision tree it's not perfect and sometimes you get to the end of the decision tree and think oh gosh you know we do need to start we need to go back around that loop because we're not really sure whether the outcome we've got to is the right one um, but the more scenario mapping that we can do that shows you know the cost variance between operating with a service provider a temp, a recruit, train, deploy partner is something that we're doing on a regular basis. So it gives users some a tangible evidence point and a starting point to be able to, um, to link to. And what we're also looking to do is create case studies where people have utilised different sourcing channels and mechanisms and found them really valuable. So we pop them on our SharePoint site as well. So if you're thinking about engaging an apprentice or you're thinking about operating through an SOW on a fixed price basis. Here's an example of what great looks like. So that's what we would like to start to build out over the course of the next 12 months. Yeah, I really like that. That's excellent. Um, Dougald, I think, you know, one thing that stands out to me is that the definitions are really a start point, aren't they? In the sense, as as I think you said earlier, what Georgina's talking about with regards to the decision tree and the process, I mean, it's a hugely complex thing. It's got to be continuously updated. There's a lot that goes into trying to program that. And actually, as you say, a very pragmatic and I think sensible way to do it, as you say, start off by having almost like an augmented conversation. But ultimately, it comes back to the the baseline that you've got, really, doesn't it? Well, I I, I guess that was the starting place. Um, And that kind of gave us the logic. And as as we talked about right at the front, you know, what was the, you know, justification for investing the time um, into a project like this? And it was compliance and cost. Yeah, you know, that was the initial driver. 
Um, but I think a couple of things I would reflect on a little bit, Johnny. I mean, what Georgina is trying to do is really ambitious. Um, and a lot of other companies want to get to the same place. You know, it's not only the co-op that wants the one to be able to be making those better buying decisions. And I think some of the examples that you, you've given there, Georgina, around showing, trying to show, you know, rather than just trying to force people to follow this, you know, um, this process, you're trying to show them the, the um, you know, how and the benefits they get, um, you know, if, if they do it. You know, and I think that's really, it'd be really interesting to see how you get that uh, adoption but the other thing that occurs to me is you can't remove the people from this either yeah yeah you know and that's whether it's really interesting that you're ultimately you're still having conversations so you're not directing your hiring managers to some uh you know an automated tool you're having conversations with them to help make the right decisions yeah and i think that's probably a good approach because that'll help them and uh, learn that behavior and and also you get the right um you know to tailor the the process and how this works um to to get to get it right for co-op but but also we you know we can't i think this it's a really good lesson you can't divorce any workforce strategy by just thinking about it is you know the, the people are, are pawns on on the chessboard right you know whether that's um the actual talent the workers that are delivering you know the work they've all got their own wants and aspirations or the you know the people that are actually using the service ultimately you need them to be um to be buying uh to adopt it and buy it otherwise it you know it, it, it you know you're not going to get the results that you you are hoping to yeah and i think that that speaks to something that the that both of you have mentioned to me in the past which is about creating a good experience creating um a, a positive interaction throughout that process and, and there's two sides to it um georgina i know that's something you've been pretty passionate about internally um, as to kind of making it easy. It goes both ways, really, doesn't it, in terms of the buyer and the supplier experience? Massively. Um, and we have a, our procurement team do a brilliant job of engaging with our suppliers on a regular basis. So we hold um, regular kind of good snot for resale supplier um, engagement events where we really integrate them into our strategy so we feel like they can represent our organization to the outside world just as well as we could represent it um, or that's definitely the, the intended outcome anyway so they can understand why we are making certain buying uh, decisions or, or judgments um, um, it's super important for us to make sure that um, the resources that those suppliers are popping on site are having a good experience because I think Dougal just said it at the start um, we're a consumer business so we want people to shop with us you know we want people to be members um and chances are if they have a poor experience when they're engaging with us then then that won't that won't continue so experience is, is absolutely key it needs to be meaningful purposeful in terms of the interactions that people are having and that's one of the things that I've really tried to hammer home with IR35 because what we're not saying to our stakeholders is if somebody's outside of IR35 you can't speak to them you can't invite them you know you, you can't do this you shouldn't do this because actually they are still an integrated part of the team they've still got to deliver successfully for you it's a balance isn't it between understanding the risks and the obligations but making sure that you are being as inclusive as you possibly can when you're engaging with with those individuals regardless of the, the category that they come from so um worker experience employee experience supplier experience whoever they might be is is fundamentally a, a you know part and parcel of what drives the work that we do um we we need to do more 
in terms of creating a better experience and monitoring the feedback and the experience that that we get um, we've got some mechanisms of doing that but that that needs to evolve but it's it's fundamental um, to us that we keep our eye on that yeah absolutely and if you've got um, a better experience happening for your buyers and for your suppliers whichever type they may be whether it's an individual whether it's a company that's supplying individuals or whether it's a company that has individuals within it that are doing some work for you um, if you get a good experience on both sides, then in theory, you should hopefully get a better outcome, better return on investment. Um, and I think it leads on to another area which, which I'm quite passionate about, just in terms of getting visibility of the supply chain, of all the different um, worker types and engagement types, is just um, building that kind of innovative um, and agile capacity within your workforce, which, which naturally needs diversity within it to, to make it more innovative and more agile um, and more all-encompassing. Um, and that also ties into some of the issues that COVID has brought up, which I, I would say go across all supply chains, but have been hitting the headlines more around goods and materials and distribution, which is resilience of supply chain. Who knows what's going to happen? Who, know, who knows who you might need to rely on and how you might need to, how you might need to engage with your trusted suppliers? So, um, you know, is, is that something that you see as one of the kind of end products in, in terms of this sort of full on, you know, I almost said total workforce. And I don't know whether that's a, a phrase you use internally, but that that kind of approach. Yeah, so we do use the phrase total workforce optimization internally. It took a while to get that explained, but we do now use that. We do now use that term. Um, so, yeah, I mean, our strategy is 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 a big one. And um, I don't just look after um contingent labour and optimization of our third party supply chain. My other focus is how we optimize and bring agility into our colleague population, how we can offer people more opportunity to, to move around, not just within their function, but within the multiple business units that they have, um, and ensure that we're creating role profiles that allow our businesses to pivot resources in the most effective place. So um, I've got a pretty broad agenda, but you know, to answer your question, are we thinking about how we can make sure that the supply chain are as integrated as possible, their experiences are as positive as possible, the output and the outcome that we were expecting is measured, monitored and maintained, absolutely. Um, but you can't do that if you can't see them. Um, and probably that one of the biggest challenges for us is we have lots and lots of agreements that are maybe milestone based or output based but are we monitoring them in the most effective way in some instances yes possibly not in other areas so to have a solution that could help us do that so we can really prove that we're getting the return on investment and a great service at the same time is um is something we've definitely got our eye on for later this year yeah, absolutely. And I think it's an area that can more easily be missed in the sense that if you look at contingent workforce, it's it's more it's a more mature market. The, the technology solutions are more mature in the contingent workforce. The MSP provisions, the actual, you know, the, the broader solutions are much more mature. And I think as you get into services procurement, statement of work, outcome based, that's where a lot more um, movement is happening right now. But um, yeah, absolutely. It all, it all forms part of the same thing. Um, so listen, just um, in terms of time, we're going to start kind of wind things up a little bit. But what I wanted to do to wrap up was just address another area, which is quite an interesting one. So, Dougal, 100% agree with what you were saying around, you know, there's people involved in this. 
you can't forget people. But but there's an interesting debate around whether organisations should focus on um, the work or the worker. Um, and it comes into what Georgina's spoken about uh, really, really well before in terms of understanding capability and capacity. Um, Dougal, first of all, for you, what's what's your view on this kind of conundrum in terms of how organisations address work, work led or worker led? Well, you know, I'm going to cop out really here, Johnny, and say <laughs> both. Right. I mean, because of course it, it is. I knew it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think, do you know what, I think maybe, you know, when I was when I was stood back a little bit and looking at the workforce like pawns on a chess set. Yeah, I'd be probably saying, you know, with a more of a procurement mindset, I think it's fair to say I'd be saying, you know, I'd be thinking about the, the, the work. But I think increasingly I realised that you can't divorce yourself from the worker. Yeah. And um, and and ultimately, I think I think it was you that said. Johnny, you know, ultimately, the only way that you're going to be able to deliver your projects if you're attractive for people to come and work with you, yeah, offer them good uh, experiences in a in a purposeful way, and they'll find out, right? They'll find out if that's not not genuine, and I think that's the same, you know, and whether it's as as you know, and I think as you said, whether it's your permanent employees, and by the way, Georgina, I love this idea that you have around you know, your own workforce being a flexible, uh, changeable workforce. Yeah. And I think that's, 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 you know, that's an intelligent company should be, should be thinking about how they do that and enable their own workforce to be, to be uh, able to, to respond to the change and changing needs of the business. Um, but all, all, all the, all, all the supply chain, right. You know, you want the supply chain to be attracted to you and their workers ultimately often, um, you know, they're they're most you know if they're a, if they're an important supplier to you, a lot of their time will be spent working with you. So you know, I don't think you can divorce yourself from the worker. If you do, then um, I don't think you'll win. Yeah, very very good points. Um, I think you know when you when you look at the sort of analytical side of it, that feels like the exercise that Cole have undertaken, and then you bring the people element into it. Um, but Georgina, just in terms of that that subject around whether you should be looking at what it is that needs to be done, how it needs to be done, or or addressing it from a we want to use this kind of worker type. What's what's your view on that? Um, so I'll cop out again and say I think it's I think it's both. And for me, I use this term all the time. I'm really boring. I bore my team. Context is context is everything. Um, so if if we really are looking to do a short, sharp piece of work um you know that's that's impactful in some ways but maybe not hugely visible then actually focus on the most efficient cost efficient way of getting that work done but actually if we're looking to um engage support on an area where you know we haven't been before we haven't got our own internal skill and capability and we actually need a knowledge build then actually you probably would focus a little bit more on the worker because of course you know you're buying expertise in in one sense of the word and um i am you know really personally passionate about the fact that um people do their great work their best work when they are engaged inspired clear about what they're there to achieve they're working to a common goal or a common outcome um, and they're actually doing stuff that they are um, that they enjoy that they're doing more than just their job so one of the things that my team are working on at the moment is um, 
sounds a basic term, but career conversations. So having conversations with your colleagues about what do you, what does five years look like for you personally and professionally? What are the things that make you tick? Why do you get out of bed in the morning? And how could that potentially relate to the work that you're doing now and the work that relates to what you might want to do in the future? And how can we give you exposure to potentially new areas that, that interest you and, and maybe excite you? Not as easy when you're operating with a you know, service provider or a contingent worker who's outside aisle 35, for example, but you still want them to be engaged and passionate about the work that they're doing in order to do their best job. And likelihood is you might want to re-engage them again. So not on a continuum, of course, naturally, but you might want to re-engage them for their particular expertise or, or their knowledge. So um, it's really important when you are buying any kind of service that has a person at the end of it you've got to be really mindful that you are um, relying on their ability to do a good job for you yeah and jo absolutely jo johnny i don't i don't want to i don't want to date your show too much right but maybe p and o <laughs> are a good example to of us or an organization that may maybe focused a bit too much on the work and not enough on the worker and um you know maybe that's uh, you know we get a good example of how that might come back to bite a company. I think with with their example, for me, it's 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 financial decisions that are that are, look good in theory, but don't actually match up in reality. That, that my my own personal take on it from the from the fairly scant information that I've I've taken in about it. I think when you look at the work versus worker thing, one of the problems that can exist in in that that work versus worker discussion is if people um, are trying to make things fit into a work, trying to make some work fit into a worker type, that's when you end up with misclassification. That's when you end up with people going down a route because it means well, I've got a headcount freeze on, so I'm just going to use this and this is the only route that I've got, or I'm just going to stick it all under a statement of work because actually I can raise a purchase order for that and there's no limits on it. And, no, and if it's under 100K, procurement aren't worried about it. Um, so, so I think it comes back round to really what you two have done and what Georgina is taking forward. If you've nailed the compliance side at the back of it, at the base, you built this foundation of a compliance-based um, approach where you clearly defined how all the different mechanisms need to work, then you can really layer on and start making the proper business decisions. Um, and actually... It can be it, you. You have you can then really bring in that consideration of the wider issues of the the people, how they're going to be working, what that means to the the, the person that's at the end of that service. So for P and O, from their point of view, what difference is there in a, a well loved employee who's really bought into the company and and been there and, and and absorbed the ethos, their interaction with a passenger versus somebody who's coming in as a contractor on a short term, for example. All of these considerations can start to be put into place. But if you haven't got that baseline understanding of the definitions and everything like that, I think it becomes a lot harder. And you're still then stuck in all the stuck in the mud of dealing with all the misclassification and everything like that. So you can't really get sophisticated. Mm, and I, and I, that that's a constant battle. You know, a number of workers are very clear about the way they they want to operate um, and that can be really difficult if you know that that particular person has the real expertise or skills capability that that you need that can be a challenge um, and for me it's about you know having an open and transparent conversation that says fine if this is the way that we want to engage these are 
these are the rules that control the fun effectively this you know if you want to engage on this basis this is what needs to be true but if actually it doesn't feel like that's going to work for you practically or pragmatically there could be another solution so we um you you can be we are very heavily influenced by workers preference and that you know will continue to be a battle forevermore whether we've nailed the definitions or not that will continue to be a battle and equally whether it's worker preference or whether it's supplier preference from some of our buyers that's something that that we that continues to be a hurdle and we need to get over so that's why the engagement with the supplier is really critical so they understand what we're doing to try and make sure that things are really easy to navigate um, we have the appropriate mechanisms and contracts in place to make sure that our ways of working are clear and that our obligations the obligations for either party are equally clear and well understood yeah so I'm going to do a little bit of a cop out here and actually agree with both of you that, that both things are important but I'm also going to borrow Georgina's buzzword and say that context is everything when you look at the work versus the worker because if whether it's that is you know do people understand the compliance the correct definitions or are they trying to fit something into something to, to somewhere it shouldn't um but if all of those things are actually dealt with um you've got to consider both side of it and and you're absolutely right Dougal you know the people side of it is is critically important in in almost all businesses these days whether it's from a, an external service provision to that business's customers whether it's from an internal um, just working environment, it's all it's all it's still people doing the work at the end of the day, isn't it? Well, do you know what? I think that's a good thing. Um, I think that's a good thing because it makes it more um, an enjoyable experience for all of us. Yeah, it makes it richer. Um, and you know, what are we uh, here for at the end of the day, right? Um, so you know, I think that's a positive conclusion um, in, in 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 my book. Uh, I'd certainly agree with that. So. Georgina, the, the journey continues with this. Um, I'm sure you're going to be extremely busy with it. Um, any particular kind of thoughts and plans for the near future in terms of how you continue to roll this out and expand the programme? Um, well, we're trying not to throw the baby out with the bathwater and we're, we're taking it on a function by function basis effectively. So we're starting with the areas where we either have the biggest opportunity to change the misclassification aspect, or we think we've got a team that can really benefit from utilizing alternative sourcing channels because they've always only ever used PERM, for example. Um, so we're just working through the organization based on the, the, the changing context that we operate within. So um, it's we're not gonna do anything revolutionary by the end of this year, I shouldn't thing but if we can get everybody talking the same language and we can really be really comfortable that we're in a compliant place and we're getting the value um value being underlined that we expect then i'm happy it doesn't need to be any more strategic than that well i think it's absolutely fantastic and i really appreciate you both taking the time to to have this conversation i've really enjoyed it and i think there's been some interesting points discussion points that have come out of it and certainly um, the fact that you, you've both been willing to share your experience with, with the work that you've done is, is very much appreciated by me. And, and no doubt um, listeners to the podcast will very much appreciate that too. Um, I know there's, there's certain things it would be great to get feedback on, wouldn't it? We'd love to know what other people are thinking. Um, I, I'm sure you both probably agree with that. Definitely. Yeah. And um, you can, I believe, download this 
Oracle, should, well, just the definitions effectively. Don't go searching Oracle on the APSCO Outsource website. <laughs> you, you won't find it. Um, but you can download this from the APSCO Outsource website. And we'd really welcome any comments from listeners on whether we've captured everything, whether there's any gaps and how this can evolve, because it will evolve. Before you know it, there'll be another worker classification that pops up that we've never even heard of. So um, we'd love to hear views and thoughts about the content and whether it's you know usable for for different businesses well we'll, we'll put a link to we'll put a link to the oracle um in the uh, in the podcast notes as well um and, and ultimately it's about best practice isn't it about sharing information if people want to get in touch um share their own experiences um i think it's a great platform for further conversations so yeah i'm really grateful to both of you um Dougal, thank you very much and georgina thank you very much it's been an absolute pleasure and um i hope you look forward to catching up with both of you again soon brilliant thanks johnny thanks Dougald. nice to see you thank you both wonderful cheers